0: Well, hi everyone! Welcome to our night Wednesday night Bible study. My name is John. I'm one of our pastors. I oversee our offsite campuses. Uh, we're just so thankful to have you here tonight. Um, tonight we're going to worship together. Pastor Dan will study. Will lead us in a study of the book of Acts. Um, when he's done leading and teaching us, he'll take your questions live on stage. So, as he teaches, you can submit any questions you might have. Uh, either through the the chat on the live stream that you're watching or you can submit submit them via email to onlinepastor at wateroflifecc.org and Pastor Dan will answer as many questions as we have time for in the time that we have after he's done teaching. So give us your best questions. Uh, For everything that's going on, we want to point you to wallupdates.com. They're daily video uh, devotions from Pastor Dan. He posts them every day uh, during the week. They're amazing, really great just to get your day started. Uh, Also, we have content for your kids, we have content for young adults and teenagers, and you can find all of that at wallupdates.com. That's W-O-L-updates.com. Now before we get started, I wanna share a scripture with you and pray for us before we start worshiping. So Ephesians uh, chapter five says in verse 15, be careful then how you live, not as unwise people but as wise making the most of time, of the time, or redeeming the time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for this time and just as that says, as Paul urges us in the book of Ephesians to redeem the time or to make the most of every minute, it feels like in this time uh, we're all, so many of us quarantined in our homes or we're not able to do the things that we normally do and so it's easy to get... sidetracked and distracted by things that are not healthy or that are just uh, not, not beneficial to us. But we wanna submit our time to you. We wanna redeem the time. We wanna make the most of every minute. And Father, this is what this is. It's time that we come together. We give it to you, Lord. We place it on the altar and say, this time is yours. Would you touch us? Would you heal us? Would you deliver us? Would you speak to us? Would you point out areas in our lives that are not, uh, where we're missing the mark? And so fathers will begin to worship. I pray that we would just open our hearts to you and let you do your work. We give it to you in Jesus name. Amen. Would you worship together with us?
1: Has just been on my heart lately. There is another in the fire. It's just pushing against the darkness. And right now, God, we just speak life. We speak light into our situations, God. God, believing and clinging that knowing that you stand beside us, God. so much hope in that, Father, that for those that are just feeling just a loneliness, and emptiness, despair, God, I pray that your light just covers, God, and we would be reminded that you are with us through all things, God.
2: to come and declare that to you tonight that we want you to reign over us God no matter what our circumstances look like no matter how we feel we want to give you everything we have and and thank you God that there that you are in the fire you're in the fire with us and we're just super grateful for that Lord we pray you lift our heads fill us Holy Spirit we need living water fresh drink of life tonight we pray that you would come and do that in the name of Jesus Everybody said amen, amen, amen. Thanks, you guys. That was awesome. You know, you should actually do that song on this weekend service. The other, in the fire, that song, that's like the whole message we're gonna be doing this weekend. So that that would be great. Okay, this is family time. So we just kinda uh, be casual here. We're being casual. So I hope that you're doing well. I wanna talk to you tonight about some of the things that are going on at Water of Life. We've had so many amazing things take place. I said to somebody this week, the journey's like way to the top of the mountain then down to the valley. It's just been like that. I think I said that the other day too. It's a really difficult journey. It's hard to stay balanced, hard to stay thoughtful. And one of the really high mountaintops that I wanna talk to you about is just your sacrifice and the love that you have for people and just feeding homeless people. And we did, we had like Wednesday. Uh, we had 37 volunteers last Wednesday. We had 37 volunteers and we uh, packed 2,868 bags of food. That's crazy number of food. That's a lot. 2,800 bags of food. We fed 717 households with four bags of groceries each. And these are important for you to understand. I was on a Zoom call today with a bunch of pastors and they were all saying, we need food, we need food. And we were helping several of the churches that were on the Zoom call and, and we were able to connect them and and work with them to get them more food. But the last Thursday, and we do this again tomorrow, uh, we do it every Wednesday and Thursday, we had 40, 40 plus volunteers down at CityLink. I went down there last Thursday, it was just blown up. Cars were down the street, around the corner. It was amazing to see what, what God was doing with the people of Water of Life, with the food, with the care, with the love. There were uh, another 685 families served at CityLink. There were 514 cars that drove through that day, and they were lying down the street around the corner in the parking lot. There were 18 walk-up guests served. There were 185, I think it was seniors, that had food delivered to their houses that day. And That was incredible because I saw a lot of you out there in your cars, and you were just loading up food in your car and driving it to seniors' homes. And just want to shout out to you and say you're incredible people. So thankful to be part of this. You know, we had 700 households that day that got food donations we gave um, from other churches that we gave food to. Point Church, um, Life Point Church, Shalom Ministries, Loveland, Conduit of Grace, Pathways, Santa Maria Church, International Student Pantry, just a whole bunch of just places we've been blessing and helping. We brought, it was like 1,500 households that got food, so we're talking between five and 7,000 people that got fed. And and then last weekend, some of you know this, but a lot of you don't, we had a blood drive. And we had like 140 people signed up. We ended up with like 90 people that gave blood and they raised $1,800. All that money was given to youth with a mission in San Francisco that's working with the homeless in the streets of San Francisco. Um, We also then sent them $10,000 to work on the streets in San Francisco. So just you guys have done, just incredible, incredible job of sacrificing loving people that are hungry. You're you're never going to know what you did until you get into eternity. And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, that you took care of me. You did it to the least of these. You did it unto me. So let me show you a bit of a trying video right now before we jump in the word. It's just a minute and a half long or something, but it, it was something I got from India this week and really pushed my heart. We reached out and helped them in a huge way, but I want you to watch the video, get an understanding what it's like for people around the world who don't have any food, they don't have any ability to store food. So let's turn that on really quick and then we'll jump back in the word.
1: It's the fear of
0: going hungry that is driving them to take this extreme measure.
1: not get
2: Delhi Chief Minister Irvin Kejriwal has said that nobody will go hungry in the city. But his assurances have failed to convince these people as they continue to pour in their
1: thousands. <laughs>
2: So, in the absence of jobs and money, uh, they desperately want to get back to their villages because they know their families will look after them there. After several appeals, officials in
1: Delhi and Uttar Pradesh have now deployed hundreds of buses to take these people home. But that aggravated the problem a bit as well because many more people turned up to get a ride home. And those who did not find a place on these buses simply continued to walk.
2: Wow, I, I don't know about you, but I watch those kinds of videos and I know some of you think, wow, those people are so removed from me, I can't connect to it. But if you ever travel, if you get to go to a third world, India is not a third world country, but it is in some ways, plays like that. And you look at the mass amounts of people that are desperate and hungry. And so we were contacted and able to send, um, I think we sent $30,000 to provide 750 people food for um, 40 days along with hand sanitizer, masks, and all that kind of stuff. So just a lot, a lot, a lot of care and love that you're spreading around the world. I wanna shout out to you as a church and just say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for loving people. So you got a Bible, an iPad, a phone. Let's turn to Acts. We'll be in chapters six and seven this week. Great, great chapters. Uh, Last week was like hard. Whew, I got some emails from you and it was hard, and I know it was hard for you. In chapter five it was very difficult we, we talked about a lot of things but one of the things I I got an email from a person this week that I want to address real quick before we jump into the study this week and they were taught they're a Jewish person um, who goes to water of life and a messianic Jew who knows Jesus and so we, just we started talking about the persecution that Jewish people face and um, the text that we quoted last week out of Matthew and and they, they said, can I kind of give you some thoughts from a Jewish perspective? And I said, certainly, uh, let's talk about that. And so their, their take on this, they just said, the root of all anti-Semitism and persecution against Jewish people is Satan. And that's the bottom line. And, and I said, I agree with that. You know, All in, uh, attempts in history to assimilate or annihilate Jewish people, from Pharaoh to Hitler to Caesar, all stem because Satan hates Jewish people, and he does. And that goes back to Genesis chapter three, where there was a hatred between the serpent and the seed, and the seed obviously refers to Jesus in Genesis chapter 3, but also to the people that Jesus came out of, which would be Jewish people. So when I quoted the verse last week, Matthew 27, 25, and and it declares, let his blood be upon us and on our children, that text, and rightfully so, when this person contacted me and brought it to my attention, they said, you know, that text has been used by Christians to persecute Jewish people for 2,000 years. And I think anytime you read it, you need to be really careful. And I said, I I agree with you because certainly we don't ever wanna do that. We don't wanna ever get in a place where we condone anything like that. Jewish people are brothers and sisters. We love them, we wanna be sensitive to history, in no way condone hatred or persecution of Jewish people. So I just wanted to clarify that. The Bible's really clear, if it weren't for the Jewish people, we wouldn't be here, Jesus was a Jewish person. So their lost opportunity, according to the book of Romans, became our opportunity to be grafted in. And so we're grateful, grateful, grateful. So I wanna clear that up and just say, I thought that was a really thoughtful insight and input, and then let's jump into, we talked about Ananias the fire last week, that was hard, but today's better. Well, for a little while, it's better. Then it gets hard again, because what you're gonna see is there's a persecution that starts to unfold in the church's life through chapter six, seven, eight, and nine that becomes very strategic to all that God was trying to do in the world, the suffering, the struggle, the sorrow. So when you get into chapter six, you see the very first racial conflict start to unfold. So let me read. A little bit of that to you the first five verses says now at this time while the disciples were increasing in number a complaint arose against the part of the hellenistic jews those are greek jews or jews of a greek background against the native hebrew jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and they said it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of god in order to serve tables Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good, uh, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom you may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval among the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So let's stop there and jump into this. This is great, because what we're gonna see is these people are, are gonna stand against the enemy's, his plan of destruction for this young baby church. And what, what happens though is persecution starts to come forth out of this, and we'll see that in just a minute with Stephen particularly. But Tertullian said in 197 AD, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And some of us, we don't really get that. We're like, what? you know. But the truth is, is that people dying have historically released the gospel when people have sacrificed their lives for Jesus. And six, chapter six and seven are really about that. It's about a church growing in the likeness of Jesus and the people around doing exactly what they did to Jesus to the church, starting to kill people. So when you get into that, you see that the numbers are increasing here. Chapter six, things are happening, but There's no perfect churches, friends, you gotta get that part. And there was no perfect church here. There was actually a racial issue started to blow up here. And you pick that up, it says, the Greek Jews were against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And isn't that often how these kinds of things blow up? If you just think about not taking the back seat in the bus anymore, it seems like a really small thing, but it unfolded this gigantic wound of cancer of racial inequality in our country and in this situation it was just serving tables and and feeding people and so what they did they did this great thing nobody accused anybody nobody got into anybody there was no blaming none of that there was just some really thoughtful godly people so it says this they came and they brought it to the to the disciples the apostles and the 12 some of the congregation of disciples said it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of god in order to serve tables so so you got to get this Jesus had trained them up how to serve tables. You remember when they collected the scraps of food? You remember when they had to go around and pick up the baskets? That must have been a little bit uh you know, just gross for them. I don't know if you've ever been a table server or not, but when you have to pick up other people's food after they've eaten, it's kind of something. Okay, we'll just keep going. But, but, but they had to do that here. They were used to doing that. And then, and then what you have is a time when they said, no, we're not gonna do that because their role had changed. And this is a really good picture of the body of Christ, friends, and the calling and gifting that people have, that there's times whenever you serve, nobody ever graduates from serving so they weren't saying, we can't serve tables. They were saying this, we have to serve by prayer and ministering the word to people. God has called us into that zone right now. That's where we have to live. And for us to not do that would be wrong. And so believing that the body of Christ, all of us together, is way better than us separated, particularly right now. We need each other, friends. And every chance I get on a Zoom call with an official or government officials, whether they a county Uh, city or state officials. I always try to input that, that you have really misunderstood the church when you label us as non-essential because we are the people, you want us to feed the poor, you want us to care for people, but we're the people that do that need to be fed as well. And we're essential to each other. We need each other, we build each other, we help each other. So as soon as we can get back together, we'll be excited about that. And obviously we see in Georgia, I saw it today, uh, and, uh, or Florida, excuse me, is Florida and Texas are gonna open up for church, 25% attendance in a building this weekend. So we're praying that our time will be sooner than later, even though the governor right now is saying it'll be two or three months away. We're gonna believe beyond that and keep believing that there things go well in those states and then we could open up sooner. But all of that to say this, there's a picture of the body of Christ here, really important picture of the body of Christ, how we need each other, how we function together and they said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, select from among you. Now, watch this. This is a really important statement. Seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we could put in charge of the task. So they did not minimize serving tables. They said, get us some people that are strategic, mature, thoughtful, and please get this part spirit-filled. We want people that move in the power of the Holy Spirit, which tells me this. There were people in the early church who didn't. And there were people who did. Just like in the church today, there's people who are open to the power of the Spirit, and there's people who are not open to the power of the Spirit. And they said, we want people who are open to the power of the Spirit. They're, o- they're full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, who we can put in charge of the task. But we will devote ourselves to, pr- excuse me, prayer and ministry of the Word. And the statement found approval among the whole congregation. And then they selected these guys. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He was um, obviously moved with power. He could preach. He did preach. He didn't just serve tables. He preached. He was the guy full of the Holy Spirit. There was Philip, Procorius, Nicamer, Timon, and Parmenus and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, which means that he got saved as a Gentile, likely, and brought in. But here's the bottom line. Every one of these people were Greeks. They were not Hebrews, they were Greeks. So they actually chose the minority to serve the people. So the discussion was they were serving both Hebrew and Greek widows, and they chose all Greek people to serve the widows, both Hebrews and Greeks. So it would be like this, it would be like if there was a conflict between some Latin folks, some white folks, some African Americans, some Asians, and some white folks, and and they went to them and said, what are we gonna do? And we said, just put all of those people that feel like they're being oppressed or wounded in charge. Put them in charge. Friends, there's so much trust here. But this is an incredibly strategic moment in the church's life where God's spirit led these guys to break the back of Satan. And you need to think that. They, they operated in the opposite spirit. So the people, the people were feeling oppressed, They said, we're gonna go in exactly the opposite way. We're gonna bring life to this situation by empowering all these people that feel not empowered and serving all these people that don't feel like they're getting served. So there was a huge breakthrough here and a great picture for those of us who are struggling sometimes in racial situations. So when you get into this and it says that the statement found approval with the whole congregation, which means they trusted their leaders and they were okay with allowing all the minority people in Jerusalem, you gotta get this, is in Jerusalem where the Hebrews reigned, they let all the minority people emerge into power and possibility and bring healing and life to the church. And then it says this, that when they did this, they brought them before the apostles in verse six and they prayed over them and they laid their hands on them. Very important picture that was born in the Old Testament of impartation. So we often at Water of Life put our hands on people we do that a baby dedication, we do that a prayer, we, we do that when we pray for the sick. It's a, it's a picture of impartation, of God moving through people into other people. That's why we need to get back together. Okay, let's keep going. Down in verse six, something started to happen though that's really, really big and very important. It says in verse six that they were, the word of God was spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. So the word of God is spreading, why? Because the church is making good decisions. And these, by the way, these seven people were actually the first deacons in the church, the people who served tables. And out of that emerged two people that were very powerfully anointed, Stephen and Philip. Philip was the evangelist we read about later in the book of Acts. Stephen obviously is gonna be martyred. He's gonna be front and centered here in just a moment in the rest of our study today. But the reality is they're moving into, they're emerging into their calling. And I say this to you as a church all the time. Man, open up to your calling, open up to your calling, emerge into your calling, believe for God to open up doors for you. Don't be satisfied with being stuck. And don't believe just because you served at one place for a season, that's where you have to stay the rest of your life. Believe for God to enlarge your journey and your, your tent pegs and your story that it would get bigger and bigger and bigger. So they appointed, they appointed these people, two of them, particularly Philip and Stephen, emerge out of this in a huge way. And they learned what it meant to serve other people. Obviously they were humble humble enough to serve the tables. They didn't have any problem with that. Sometimes when we come to people and we say, hey, could you do this? They're like, what? You want me to sweep the floor? You want me to? Yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody ever graduates from serving other people. But you do want to move into your calling, friends. It's It's a picture of body life. It's Romans 12, Ephesians 4. There's pictures of the body. And you have to serve in the role that God has called you to serve in and do it joyfully and do it with excitement. So here we go. They laid hands on them, they prayed, and the word of God is spreading. The number of disciples continue to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Please don't miss that. Got a Bible, an iPad, a phone, underlined in Jerusalem. Because if you remember what Jesus said, Jesus said to the uttermost parts of the earth, but the disciples are only increasing in Jerusalem. So as we move on, it's important to note the next three chapters from this verse on, chapter six, verse seven, to chapter nine, verse 31, deal primarily with three key people. Stephen, Philip, who we just talked about, and Saul, who later became Paul. Those three people make up the story for the next three chapters. So let's talk about that for a minute. Luke wouldn't have done that if it wasn't very, very important for us. These three people were super strategic in the birthing and the growth of the early church. So Luke identifies them, gives three chapters to them, so we would really get a picture of what's happening. So you got Stephen here, super anointed, very passionate guy. They said he was full of wisdom when he spoke. He spoke with wisdom, he's full of the Spirit, and he spoke with power and authority because of that. His life was submitted to the Spirit, and that was evident when he was under pressure. So how about you and me? When we're under pressure, is your life evident that you're full of the Spirit? I know for me, sometimes I'm like, I need to back down, get out and go sit before Jesus and just get refreshed and refilled because all of us can run out of fuel, friends. If if we're not soaking up the presence of God, we're not gonna be living as spirit-filled people. So time away from people, time alone with the Lord, time in worship is so, so, so important. And Stephen was a guy who obviously understood that. So it says this, Great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. We talked about that last week. That probably has to do with Barnabas and him functioning as a priest, leading other priests. Now, when we say priest, you gotta think like this. There were lots and lots, hundreds, and probably even thousands of priests who weren't um, in high positions of power and authority. They were the ones that functioned every single day in the temple. They were people like um, John the Baptist's father, and people like that who just functioned and did their part and then went home and, and went back to work. But they were still called priests. So many of them were coming to Jesus. And so when you see that picture, that's an important to note. Now watch Stephen here, verse eight. Got your Bible, your iPad, your phone, let's read together. It says, Stephen, full of the grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some of the, the men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including uh, Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly induced men to to say that we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So, So this is a great picture, man, of a guy who's out there serving tables and then preaching the word with passion. So let's pick up verse eight. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, Wouldn't you like your life to be described like that? Full of grace and power. That you're thoughtful, you're kind, you're forgiving, you're honoring, and then there was an anointing on you of great power and authority. That was Stephen. And in the midst of that, friends, when you see that the the Spirit is moving on him, listen to what it says. Performing great signs and wonders among the people. Should you expect the miraculous if you're open to the Spirit? Absolutely. You should still expect that today. You should still expect God to heal when you pray over people. You still expect God to restore marriages and move mountains. We're gonna talk about that in the next couple of weeks when we finish up contentment part six this weekend and then we move into the, the, the book of, um, of Zechariah and we start to talk about Zechariah the prophet and the power of the Spirit un- unleashed in the lives of the people. And this is a guy who had the power of the Spirit unleashed in his life. It, he moved with great authority, great power and then it says this there was among them the synagogue of the freedmen including cyrenians and alexandrians uh, it's important that i say something to you right here early on that you understand cyrenians we probably talking about tarsus and we're probably talking about saul saul was likely in the synagogue with these people because he was from tarsus and that's where these people worshiped in this temple that was for people from out of the area. So it was a synagogue, it says, of freedmen, Cyrenians and Alexandrians from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with him, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The power of the Holy Spirit was on him and they couldn't deal with it. Then they, they secretly induced people to lie about him. Doesn't that sound exactly like what happened with Jesus? They were called false witnesses. Literally, they took information and twisted it, just like they did with Jesus. Some of the things that they said he spoke, he actually spoke, but they were taken out of context. And how many know context is crucial? If you take one just little snippet of something, drop it on somebody, it sounds like, oh man, that's really bad, but you put it into context, changes the whole perspective and story. So these guys were falsely accusing him, and it says in verse 11, they secretly induced people to say, that he spoke blasphemous words and they stirred up the people, the elders and scribes, they came to and they dragged him away and brought him before the council. Again, the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, depending on which way you wanna pronounce it, but they dragged him before the council and these were the same people again who tried Jesus. It says they put forward false witnesses and said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law." Stop right there. This is a really crucial moment for the church. Hell is trying to destroy the church. And so the accusation that they make is a really important one. They're saying literally that he's against our traditions and the places where we worship. So he's speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter our customs, which Moses handed down to us. And then it says in verse 15, fixing their gaze on him, All who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. This is such a great picture because he was full of the spirit, full of wisdom and kindness. But he said really, really hard things to them. And this is so important for some of us to figure out that that even though Stephen was gonna say hard things, he did it nice. And if we can say hard things to the people around us and do it nice, it creates favor. Friends, it it opens up the gate for the Spirit of God to convict their heart. And that actually happened to a guy named Saul, likely in this midst. And that's how he partially came to know Jesus. What you got to figure out is these people are, these Stephen, Philip, these apostles are still going to the temple every day, and they're worshiping. They're worshiping as Jews who know Jesus. But there was something so big here that Stephen had figured out that most of the other apostles hadn't. This was supposed to get outside of Jerusalem. The church was still increasing, says in verse seven, but greatly in Jerusalem. And Stephen apparently had the supernatural insight that God was trying to do something much, much larger. So they come against him and say that this is about traditions and customs and what you live for. And you need to figure this out. You're gonna live in the spirit, friends. Tradition and customs are gonna have to die sometimes. I mean, Paul talked about traditions and he said they were really good, some of them. But then uh, at other times, he said, listen, the Spirit wants us to let go of these things. You've got to be ready to let some things die. It's kind of like this. We say around here sometimes, there are no sacred cows. Sometimes you need to take a ministry that's over and make hamburger out of it and eat it. You don't keep it alive just because it was once. You let it go and you do what the Spirit is saying. If you're gonna be Spirit-filled people, you gotta move with the Spirit. So, it literally says that, they were, that, that that he had an issue with the temple. But let's be clear about this. Jesus in Matthew 12, six says, there's one greater than the temple is here. And he was referencing himself. And Jesus was trying to get them to figure out, this isn't about worshiping in a building. It's about worshiping in a heart for God. And that is exactly where Stephen is going with this discussion. He gets really deep, really hard, really fast in chapter seven. So let's jump in there. There's 60 verses. So we're just gonna fly over a bunch of them and you can read them deeper on your own. But this is actually called Stephen's defense. But it really wasn't a defense because it was far more offensive to them. He wasn't defending himself. That's important that you get. The picture here is he not defending himself. He's actually unpacking Jewish history. And Jewish people love their history. And so he's unpacking their history. But in that, he starts to show this picture that's consistent throughout time and history, which was, you don't need to worship in a building, God will move wherever you worship with your heart. And Stephen hits on that over and over and over, to move freely where the Spirit tells you to move when God tells you to go. Now Stephen, when he's doing this, he quotes from scripture, and I wanna help you understand how this plays in chapter seven. When he quotes from scripture, he quotes from the Septuagint. Now, some of you don't know what the Septuagint is. It actually means 70 in Greek. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. So you took the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew, and you translate it into Greek because Greek was the language of the day, much like English is today in the world. English is the language of commerce. If you wanna make money in the world, you speak English. So the Romans actually conquered the Greeks, but the Greeks' culture conquered the Romans. So the Romans, everybody ended up speaking Greek and reading and writing in Greek. And so what they did is they, a bunch of Jewish scholars got together. The legend has it that there were six translators from each tribe that got together, but we don't know that for certain. But there were certainly scholars who got together and translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And they called that book, that Bible, that Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. So when Stephen is quoting, he's quoting from that. Why is that? Because Stephen was a what? A Greek, he was a Greek, he was a Greek guy. So he spoke Greek, he lived Greek, he knew Greek. And that was a common language of the time for him. So let's pick up in chapter seven, we'll read the first eight verses. It says the high priest said, are these things so? Does this really happen? And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia uh, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I'm gonna show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had moved him to another country to which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. So he's now quoting from the Septuagint. Verse six, it says, but God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, and whatever uh, nation to which they would be in bondage, I myself would judge, said the Lord God. And after that, they will come out and they will serve me in this place. And he gave them him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac. And here's all the history, the, the Hebrew Jewish history. Isaac became the father of Jacob, Jacob of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes. Remember that the 12 patriarchs are the 12 tribes of Israel. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all of his affliction, granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king, and he made him the governor over Egypt and his household. So he starts to walk through all of this history, all of this history, all this history. Now watch where he goes. It says in verse 11, "'A great famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan, "'and a great affliction with it, "'and our fathers could find no food. "'But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, "'he sent our fathers there for the first time.'" So here's the picture. They're having to leave the land that they had been promised and go into the land of Egypt. This is important that you get this, where where he's going with this story. And he sent our fathers there for the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, all of his relatives to come and move into Egypt, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt there. He and and, and our fathers died. And and from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in a tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor." And so, so what happened was, they all died outside the promised land. That's the picture, an important picture that you get that they died outside the promised land, that they lived their life outside the promised land and God still blessed them. That's where he's going with this story. Then it says in verse 17, "'But as the time of promise was approaching, in which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race, mistreated our fathers, so that they would expose their infants and they would be killed and not survive. So the Egyptians were concerned because the Hebrews were multiplying and, and God was blessing them with children and children and children. And it began to be so threatening to the Egyptians that they said, you have to kill all these little boys. And so it was at that time, it says in verse 20, that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after that, he was set aside. Uh, After that, he had been set outside. Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. We're actually gonna talk about that on Mother's Day, how his mother sacrificed her love for her son and gave him up. This is a great picture of the heart of God and how so many of you mothers love your children. And it says after that, he had been set outside and his mother gave him up to Pharaoh's daughter. And it says in verse 22, Moses was educated in the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds. It's important that you catch that. Moses was schooled by the Egyptians. Moses was empowered by the egyptian he went to egyptian schools the finest schools in the world and he was a man of power and deeds he was a very 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 strong personality says in verse 23 when he was approaching the age of 40 he entered his mind to visit his brother and the sons of israel so he had an identity crisis going on he knew he was a hebrew but he was living as an egyptian and he goes out to see the hebrew people and he knows it's his identity. It says in verse 22, when he was approaching the age of 40, he went out to see the sons of Israel. When he saw them being mistreated unjustly, being treated unjustly, he defended them, took vengeance uh, for the oppressed and struck down an Egyptian. And he supposed that his brother would understand that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And actually, Moses didn't understand either. He really thought that he would be the guy in, in those terms, on his own terms, to set the people free. And that was never gonna happen, friends, that you and I are never gonna set people free. We set people free when we yield to the spirit and God does the supernatural breaking of us and the releasing us to help break bondage in other people. And that's exactly what happened with Moses. So he, he goes on here and down in verse 37, we'll get there in just a minute, he talks about what took place and how this all unfolded. And Moses prophesied Jesus coming he supposed that they would see him as a deliverer, but they didn't. And on verse 26, it says, the following day they appeared to them and they were fighting together and he tried to reconcile them in peace. So now he's going out to see the Hebrew people. He's going out over and over to, to visit his own people and there's a connection happening. But when he tried to stop the fight, he said, men, why are you injuring each other? And the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, which is an amazing statement that the guy would put his hands on Moses, who was at that time, way, way, way up the food chain of power and authority in Egypt, and the guy actually shoved Moses, who was, according to legend, a very powerful warrior himself, which means he could have pulled out his sword and struck the guy down in a second as a Hebrew, and nobody would have said anything if he would have killed a Hebrew. It's the fact that he killed an Egyptian that got him into trouble. And it says, "Why are you injuring each other?" The guy pushed him away. and Said, "Who made you a ruler or a judge over us? Do you not? Did you not mean to kill me? As you do you not mean to kill me? As you killed the Egyptian yesterday?" At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. In verse 30, it says, "After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of the burning thorn bush." When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight and he approached to look more closely. And there came the voice of the Lord I am the, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But, but the Lord said to him Take off the sandals which are on your feet, place them on the ground, uh, w- off this ground, which is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, have heard their groans, and have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Uh, This is really important. Where Stephen is going, keep this in, in your head. He's trying to make a point with these guys. They know their history well, friends, but he's trying to make a point. Here's his point. Wherever you are, God will move if you're yielded to him. Doesn't matter if you're in a Gentile land, if you're up on the Mount Sinai, it doesn't matter where you are. What matters is if your heart is open to listen to the power of the Lord move through you. This is not about temple worship. This is not about a place in Jerusalem. This is about the power of God on the people of God. And that's where Stephen is going. He's, a, he's saying this, listen, so important you get this. The gospel is for the whole world. It's not just for this one group of people. It's not just for the city of Jerusalem. It's not just for Jewish people. It's for the whole world, all the nations. Stephen got this better than any of the other apostles at a very, very, very early time. So he goes on and he starts to quote David then and talk about David and he talks about what had happened there. And Moses, it says in verse 35 though, Moses, whom they disowned said, who made you a ruler or a judge is the one who God sent both a ruler and a judge to deliver the help of the angel uh, who appeared to him in the thorn bush. So the angel made him anointed as a deliverer, not his own power. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is a word over Jesus' life. The prophetic statement that Moses as a prophet spoke over Jesus' life, that Jesus would be coming and he would become the deliverer of all people. And this is the one who was in the congregation, in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him in Mount Sinai who was with our fathers. He received living oracles to pass on to you. He received a living word of God that he gave to you. When did he do that and where did he do that? In Mount Sinai, out in the desert. Important again to just keep that in front of you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. They repudiated him. In their hearts they turned back to, to, to Egypt saying, To Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. This Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt um, is not a good guy. We do not know what happened to him. He went up on the mountain and disappeared. At that time, they made a calf, uh, brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing the work of their own hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Rumpha and the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. So he's giving a picture here that is a reflection of the people that are actually trying him. He's saying all these things God was speaking supernaturally through Moses. He was anointed. He did signs and wonders and you rejected him. He's saying that you did the same thing to Jesus and now you're actually doing the same thing to me. That's what Stephen, that's Stephen's defense. He's saying, you are all blind, you cannot see what God is doing. It says down in verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Again, stop here, he's making a point. The tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness was not the temple that was built in Jerusalem. It was a place that was taken down and moved over and over and over. The point again is you can worship God wherever you're at. He is on the move. Are you on the move with him? And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before the fathers until the time of David. They worshiped in a tabernacle, a tent. They took it down, put it up, took it down, put it up. In verse 46 it says, but David... David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for God, the God of Jacob. So David went to God and said, look at, I want to bless you. We all have nice houses. I want to bless you. And God actually convicted them a couple of times and said, you're all living in panel homes. you got nothing for me. But that wasn't because God needed a house. It was because God needed their hearts. He knew that they were putting themselves first instead of him, their money into their own stuff instead of him, into his heart. So Here's where it goes. David thinks he needs to build God a house. And, it's, and here's where Stephen goes with this. He says in verse 47, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands. The prophets have said this. This isn't what God is after. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool, the footstool of my feet. What kind of house could you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made everything? And here's what God is saying. I don't need a building. I'm looking for a heart. The earth is my temple. I will meet you wherever you are in whatever place you're in. It is not about a building. It is about your heart. So here's where he just jerks the noose right around these guys' neck and it ends up costing him his life. He says in, and by the way, he was quoting Um, Isaiah 1 and two. I wanna read that to you really quick. We're just about out of time, but I wanna get here for you. We're almost done. And Isaiah 66 is a really, really important passage that, that Stephen refers to right here. Isaiah 66, verse one and two says this, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to the nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to this rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. And so uh, people who continually provoke me. Again, it's this picture that, of David, what David is speaking in. Second Samuel 6, 1 Chronicle 15, that God, listen, God wants way more than a place to live in. He's after people throughout the earth. So when you get to this and you start to read this and you start to go, hmm, What is the purpose here? Watch the purpose because it's really, really big. He says then in, uh, get right back here, I'm sorry. He says then in verse uh, 53, 51, I'm sorry. He says in verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Friends, that statement cost him his life. He literally said, He built this whole picture, and they were like, what, 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 what? And then he says, you're these people. The Spirit of God is trying to move all over the earth. You won't let that happen. The Spirit of God is trying to touch people. You won't let that happen. The Spirit of God has brought prophets. You won't listen to them. The Spirit of God has brought signs and wonders. You won't respond to them. You are crushing everything that God is doing, just like your forefathers did with Moses. So he says, you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just like your fathers. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. So he is on trial, literally, they said, for not keeping the law. And not honoring the temple. <clears throat> and yet, the lawgiver, he's saying, is Jesus. And you say that you honor the law, but you dishonor the lawgiver. And the lawgiver is way, way, way more important than the law. And so that's the whole picture here. We're gonna pick up some of this when we get into Zechariah chapter 4, um, verse 7, and chapter 6, verse 12, talk about all of this. And then when he says, we're not gonna have time tonight to get into that. But when he says these things to them, everything blows up, I mean big time, blows up. Stiff neck reminded them they're exactly the same as their fathers, this is a bad deal. They think they're fulfilling the law but they're actually denying the lawgiver, Jesus. So they rushed upon him, it says. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick, which means convicted, you need to think that. It went right through their heart. They were like, us, you know, they didn't like it. So they didn't humble themselves, they rose up with pride. And it says, they were cut to the quick. They were cut to the quick and they rushed upon him, began gnashing their teeth, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open up, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this is a very interesting text here because he uses the words the Son of Man. Nobody else ever calls Jesus the Son of Man except for Jesus. Jesus is the only one who called himself the Son of Man, except for Stephen right here. And then he says this, this is very interesting. I see him standing at the right hand of the Father. Well, nowhere else in scripture is Jesus standing, anywhere. Everywhere he's sitting, and sitting is a remarkable picture because it gives us the sense that he's finished, the work is done on the cross, and he's sitting next. He's sitting on a throne. And, and here in this picture, Stephen is saying, no, I see him standing. I'm not quite sure why he was standing. He's probably cheering. I think he probably jumped up out of his chair and started cheering for Stephen, knowing that Stephen's life was gonna be given in just a minute. But um, there was something supernatural here happening. And it says in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. This is the same term that was used in the upper room. The same word, one accord or one impulse. The word homo, Thamadon, and Thamadon we get the word temperature from or thermometer. So the same temperature, everybody had the same temperature. In the upper room, the temperature was on fire for God, open to the power of the Spirit. Here, the same temperature is the spirit of death and murder. And that had consumed their hearts, the same picture, and they rush upon Stephen. They cry out with a loud voice, it says in verse 57, cover the ears, rush on him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who was a Pharisee. So he wouldn't have participated in the stoning. He would have just watched in agreement, which he said later he did. They laid their robes at his feet. And then the stoning of Stephen went on as he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And having said this, he fell asleep. This is such a great, great picture. Because nowhere does it say he died. It says he went to sleep. And this persecution blew up the whole church. From this moment and the words that Stephen brought to these people changed the course of Christianity. I know we read it, we just kind of go, what, 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 what? But they understood. And the people that heard the defense that he brought understood there was something way larger that he was speaking to. He was speaking to not having to worship in one place or one country, but God would move throughout the land and throughout all people. When this took place, there's a couple of verses in chapter eight that really should have been left in chapter seven. Let me read them to you. It says in chapter eight, verse one, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death And that is the Apostle Paul that we know. And then listen to this verse. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him but Saul began to ravage the church, entering house after house and dragging men and women off and putting them in prison. We'll pick that up next week. I told you that the next three chapters are going to be about three people: They're going to be about Stephen, going to be about Saul, and going to be about Philip. And so you got the picture of Stephen. Stephen gave up his life, but he angled into such a way, he was used so strategically by God that his blood was used to scatter and allow a persecution to come forth in Jerusalem that scattered the gospel throughout the earth. And that is why he is so important. Now, when it says that that when you read these texts that are so clear about what happened, sometimes people say this, how did Luke know all of this? Well, he got his story from other people. And most people, scholars believe that it was none other than Paul the apostle who told the story about himself here that it was Paul telling Luke, because they were very close friends, that Paul was telling Luke that everything that took place with Stephen and how he was partner in that death because he was part of that Cilician synagogue, many scholars believe, in Jerusalem, and so was Stephen, and so they would have actually known each other, and Paul was in hearty agreement with him being put to death and later heartbroken for doing it. If you read in Acts chapter eight, you get a closing, that, that closing statement about Stephen's death and the persecution that ensued and you go, what happened? What happened was very strategic on God's part. He allowed Stephen to die so that you and I could live. Friends, it's hard for us to get our head around that because we're like, what? No, 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 he allowed, Stephen was willing to give up his life for the gospel to spread throughout the earth. And it would not have gone to Gentiles the house of Cornelius and all of these other places unless Stephen would have stood his ground the way that he did on this day. So it's a great, great, great story. I hope it's a good Bible study for you. Um, I think John's waiting to come up so we can ask some questions. Hopefully we can answer a couple questions.
0: Okay, we do have some questions. It was a good study. <laughs> it's funny, that that sermon from um, Stephen seems so long, but really compared to our sermons now, I mean, it's, it's actually really short. I mean, it's, it's yeah. only, it's a chapter, you know? Um, so uh, let's get right into some of these questions. If, uh, if God doesn't need a building and is looking for the heart, why
2: do we go to church? Why do we go to church? Because we need each other. Yeah. This isn't anything about the building. We need each other. We need buildings to gather people in. And so, But the problem here was, friends, is that the temple had taken on its own life. The temple ceremonies, the temple journey, the temple life for a Jewish person was crucial. And it had taken such a large, large, large place in the Jewish culture that it had, it, it had overtaken God's place in their lives. And so the temple worship, the temple liturgy, and friends, you'll figure this out. If you go to some of the largest um, cathedrals you'll see in the world, and some some of them were built on the blood of people that shouldn't have died, and some of them were built by people that really wanted to honor God. So you gotta be careful how you judge those things, but the reality is sometimes those cathedrals were way more important to people than God was. And that's the picture here, is that don't let the building ever take the place of the person of God. Right. Don't let liturgy replace fire in your heart. That's what Stephen was saying to them. You miss the signs and wonders, you miss the power, you miss the Holy Spirit, and, and you can have a huge building, a wonderful place, a temple, a sanctuary like ours, but if you lose the heart of God, you lost everything. Yeah. So the building in and of itself isn't bad. Losing the heart of God is bad over the building, and a lot of people do that because they get enamored with stuff. Yeah.
0: I think, too, we we always we often get into this idea that this is church, this yeah. room that we're in right now. It's not church. Not church. We're the church.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We gather together to encourage each other, build each other up, help each other live as the church, the body of Christ. We are an entity that needs to help and build and encourage each other and function in different ways like they did in the early church. Feeding the poor, caring yeah. for people, serving other people, speaking the gospel, all of that.
0: Yeah, yeah being the church. Verse 49 in uh, chapter seven says heaven is my earth, sorry, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. footstool. What kind of house will you build for me says the Lord or what is the place of my rest? And so, was question. it
2: not my hand that built all of this? It's important to say that God is like, right. I already did all of this, I don't need you. Whatever you build is never gonna be as important as what I built, that's what God is saying. And
0: uh, the question is, what nuances does verse 49 have on times like these when we're doing church at home?
2: Well, that's a good question. I think this, I think that we all understand that, we don't, that your worship at home can be just as anointed and powerful or more than your worship at church in the building. I love it when Chantel's up here and worship team's up here and they lead me into the throne room of God, but I don't have to have that. I can go up on the side of the mountain behind my house or in the bedroom in my office, close the door and get the same move of God without them. Yeah. And so we all have to understand that. Some of the deepest things that God has ever done in my life were done not in a corporate setting but alone with God. And that's the most important thing I think we can learn about worshiping at home is that it doesn't have to happen here, but when if we don't gather here, friends, if we're not in the building together, we're missing out so many moves of God. We're missing the prophetic move of God, speaking one to another as we crash into each other, the divine appointments that God brings, the, the don't forsake fellowshipping together because you encourage one another. We all need that, and some of us are starving for that. We ran into a fella, um, my wife did, in, in a market this week, who has been part of Water of Life for a long, long time, was on staff here for a long time. And she just said to him, how are you? And he burst into tears, he said, I'm horrible. Yeah. And his wife was killed in an accident a few years ago and he's alone. So he, his time right now is alone. Wow. And, and he just wept in front of her. And I thought, we, how, how can we be non-essential? How can the government not understand how much we need each other? Right. and how much we need fellowship together, how much we need to be around each other. And that's why I, you know, I keep circling back to, to drive-in church, thinking maybe we should just go down in Lot A and have a service and let you all just drive in, honk your horn, shout at each other, and get to say hi. You know, not get out of your car, stay in your car and wave at people. But, but be able to, to just encourage each other. We need that yeah. so much. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, we sure do. Um, this is a, oh, what a good question, I think. Um, Natalie says, Pastor Dan, can you explain what circumcised at heart means?
2: Yeah, that's a great, great, great question. Okay, first you gotta understand circumcision, what it was about. So when Moses, or Moses, Abraham was asked to be circumcised, um, a lot of people are like, what the heck is that? So you're gonna cut off the foreskin of a male sex organ. What in, what in the world does that have to do with God? Yeah. The answer is everything. It's, it had to do with identity. That is exactly the picture of circumcision, was an issue of identity. And God was actually saying, I want you to remove part of your identity as a man, Abraham, so that I can have all of your identity of your heart. I know that for some of you, that's hard to swallow and hard to even figure out, but that is the picture in scripture, that circumcision was about your identity as a man. He was asking for Abraham to yield his identity to the hand of God and receive a new identity in Christ by faith is what Abraham was asked to do. So if you're talking about being circumcised in heart, you're talking about cutting off, the Bible talks about cutting off the flesh so that you can receive from the spirit. Mm -hmm. It was the same picture for Abraham was if you will remove the foreskin then you will be, you're making a declaration that you would remove part of your identity to receive your identity in your fullness that I have for you. And that was the picture. So the picture in the circumcision of the heart is remove the hardness of your heart so you can get back the fullness of the gospel, that you would open back up to the softness of the spirit and, the, and all that God wants to give you. You have lost that. He was trying to say to these leaders, your hearts have grown hard and cold you need to be circumcised. You need to have that cut away so you could receive again the heart of the Father.
0: Yeah, and they knew exactly what he was saying. They knew he was, exactly he was, what he was saying. They, right where,
2: they knew exactly yes. what this was about because they performed that ritual on all of their children all the time. Right.
0: Um, Patricia says, do you think that sometimes our mouth and our emotions get us for the enemy to persecute us by inflicting sickness into God's people?
2: Wow. You crossed a bunch of territory there for me. So yeah. the, so our mouths could get us into a place of persecution so the enemy can cause sickness. Say it again.
0: I think, it's, she says, do you think that sometimes our mouth and our emotions get us for the enemy to persecute us by inflicting sickness unto God's people?
2: Well, certainly our mouth and our emotions get us into places of sin. And when we get into places of sin, our guard goes down and the enemy can attack us. And sometimes that has to do with illness as well, yeah. So yeah. I would say yes, that could happen. Um, I'm not sure where she found that in this text, but um, yeah, that, I think that can happen. In, in this text, what you're dealing with is people who more like the, first, the, the prior question that talked about circumcision of the heart. This is a long-term hardness that has happened here. And yeah. God keeps trying to break away at it, break away. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of this. He's trying to break away the hardness of heart, and they wouldn't allow that to happen. Right, yeah. Um, Brad says, You mentioned that Paul agreed
0: with the persecution but did not participate. Later we know that Paul became an apostle and lamented his agreement. In what ways could this provide a model for the, for others who perhaps didn't speak up against an injustice earlier in their life?
2: Well, I think... Um, I'm pretty sure I know who Brad is. I do he's too. He's a I smart think, yeah. guy. <laughs> so, as soon as you say Brad, I go, he's going to give me an interesting question. And then he's going to text me tonight on the way home about it. <laughs> so, um, so I, I think that what happened here with it, Saul said, he gave, it says in verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1 Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So, uh, Saul participated in the stoning of Stephen without picking up a stone. That's important you get that part. Oh. Because he was, he, his role as a Pharisee uh, prevented him from murdering and then going back in the temple. But he was in hearty agreement. So laying their coats at his feet, he said, I'll take care of all your coats. I'm totally right. on with you. I just can't do this. You know that I, I'm not allowed to do this. And they right. said, yeah, you're not allowed to do it. So he didn't do it. But he totally agreed and was part of the stoning of Stephen. And he later said that to himself. So. I don't think that he really gave, um, I mean, go ahead. what's the second part of the question? Is, is How does that allow us to have freedom said, to not?
0: Yeah, in what ways could this provide a model for others who perhaps didn't speak up against an injustice, injustice yeah. earlier in their life?
2: Yeah, well, yeah. first off, I mean, Saul didn't see this as an injustice. So I'm not sure it's really a model of somebody who didn't speak up because Saul thought this was justice. Yeah. So... If you don't speak up about an injustice, you have to recognize that it was wrong. You knew it inside, but you acquiesced and went along with all the people. I don't think that's what happened here. Saul fully was in hearty agreement with killing the guy. Yeah. He wanted Stephen to die. He thought it was the best way to get rid of Christianity was to persecute all these people. That's why it says he went throughout the land and arrested people and Christians and killed them. And he said that later. We'll open that up in the next few weeks and talk about it. But the reality here is when you look at this, is I don't think that's a good picture of a person who had any kind of conviction and then didn't respond to it. Though yeah. that does happen sometimes, and when that happens, we all know that. That would be more like, to me, like Peter um, and not responding to the need of Gentiles to have justice and be open to the gospel when he denied something he knew was right. Peter knew that the, by that, the time that he denied, um, when Paul came to Jerusalem, confronted Peter and said, how dare you, yeah. you know, not eat with these people after you sat with them privately? And Peter knew that he was wrong. He had, he had participated in an injustice because he knew in his heart he was wrong. I think that's a different picture than here.
0: Yeah, and I think for Paul, it did drive him to an, an incredible level of humility. Yeah. We see through his letters that yeah. knowing what he had done. That's a good point. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, Melly says, that word went to sleep I've been told that it means the person died. Is that always the case?
2: In the New Testament, yes. It's always used for believers who are moving from this life to the next life, that we don't die. Death has a finality to it that Christianity doesn't experience. The Bible says, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't fear evil because walking through the shadow of death is that human response of dying and feeling like, Okay, I'm, my body is gonna stop working, but my spirit is still alive. Yeah. It's the shadow, I don't ever die. When a person is gone from this planet, they didn't die, they moved to, from this life to the next life. They went to sleep in this life, but they're alive more than I am in the next life. Yeah. So, yeah, it does, in the New Testament, reference death all the time.
0: Yeah. Even I, I was reading the story of Jairus's daughter. Yeah. He says to the family, "He says, no, she's not even dead. She's she's merely sleeping." Right. You know, um, is this is a question I had? Absolutely, and it I think it, it makes us nervous when we see the the benefit. It's hard to say, but the benefit of persecution uh-huh. uh, throughout church history. Right. This person asks, is persecution a part of God's plan? And I would add to that, is it necessary for purification? Is it necessary for growth?
2: Persecution a part of God's plan. Let's remove the word persecution and talk about suffering. Yeah, Suffering is part of God's plan in this fallen world. There's no question about that. Um, I mean, we're going to teach this week in Romans chapter 5. And Romans 5 is a great text which I'll just walk you through a bit of it really quick here, but Romans five talks about suffering. In verse three it says, not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and that this hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. So out of suffering and struggle comes hope. Yeah. And that's always been the picture of the church. So it's kind of this picture for me. When I was a kid, this is a bad thing to share, so if you have children listening, they probably shouldn't hear this, but when I was a kid at Emerson Junior High School, we used to have food fights sometimes when I was in junior high, and I loved those food fights. Those were awesome, (laughs) (laughs) but we would just suddenly stand up and throw a roll or something across the, you know, a a, a cinnamon roll across the the room, and then a food fight would break out and everybody would get in trouble. But during those times, we'd often be loaded up with mustard packs or ketchup packs, and we'd set them on the floor and stomp on them, and they would shoot across the room on people. <laughs> That's a terrible picture. I'm so glad my kids aren't listening right now. But <laughs> that was the picture that I always got of the church. It's like in China, whenever you stomp on the church, it just squirts out all over the place. Yeah. And every time throughout time in history that the enemy has stomped on the church, it just it just spreads like yeah. mad all over the place. Yeah. And, and so there is something about persecution that has allowed the gospel to flourish in times when it doesn't flourish, even in our country right now. The the tragedy for me of Christianity right now in our state is that we have very little influence yeah. in our state. I mean, our, our governors, our leaders, most of them don't care. They don't see us as essential. That's why they labeled us as non-essential. So what group was it in Texas or Florida today? They said churches are essential. They need to be part of the very first part of opening back up. And our governor says, you're non-essential, you go with the NBA, you go with Major League Baseball, you open when they open. I'm like, wow, these are different worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's a problem for me because we have really lost sight of the gospel in yeah. America, I yeah. think, yeah. Yeah, what it's really about.
0: Um, Alfredo, I think this, this came from uh, the moment when Stephen, Stephen passes away. He says, do we know how heaven, uh, how will heaven look?
2: <laughs> I think, I can only imagine, huh? That's a good line, yeah, yeah, right? I can only imagine yeah. what it'll be like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I the Bible I can only gives... imagine, I mean, I know we don't know, but what was great about this picture for Stephen was he got a glimpse of heaven before he yeah. went there, you know? He saw the Lord, I think, standing and cheering for him. Yeah. Like, you're gonna get rocked right now, but you're gonna rock the world. I'm gonna use you as an instrument right now to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm gonna break the mold of the temple. And this was leading to the destruction of the temple ultimately. That's what happened here. And and so this is probably four, five, six years after Jesus' crucifixion. So you're four to five to six years after Jesus' crucifixion and they're still in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. The gospel hasn't gone anywhere. It's still in Jerusalem. If you want the gospel, come to Jerusalem to get it. We're still worshiping in the temple. We're still looking like we're Jewish people. Yeah. But this changed everything. It was a complete game changer when this happened to Stephen because suddenly we were no longer worshiping in the temple and we're no longer a Jew who is in love with Jesus. We are now a Christian. We have stepped aside from that, and that's where Paul became such a strategic part of all that. And Stephen's death, obviously was circumstantial in all of that, of, yeah. of him getting saved. So.
0: Yeah, they weren't fulfilling the Great Commission.
2: Yeah, they weren't. All. They were not going to every nation. They weren't going out of Jerusalem. Right. Um, Cheryl says,
0: why did the Romans allow the Hebrews to stone Stephen?
2: Now, this is a really good question.
0: But the Jews had said they couldn't kill exactly. Jesus themselves.
2: This is, that right. is a great, 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 great question. That's a person who's been reading their Bible. So what you have here is you have a picture of the Romans saying that they wouldn't they wouldn't um, they would allow the Jews to to crucify Jesus finally after after Pilate washed his hands of it and he and he moved away. But they had to go through Pilate to get to Jesus. Mm-hmm. They didn't go through Pilate here. So what happened? That's a super important question. What happened was Pilate was losing his grip on Jerusalem at this time, and he was ultimately going to lose his job there. He was up in Caesarea. When this took place, he was not in town. And so somewhere he had empowered, there was a deal brokered here somewhere with Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, where he and they had an agreement that they could deal with some of these things Mm -hmm. with the Christians. There's no question about that because these people were not brought before a Roman court at any level. And they were stoned to death at a time when they rarely stoned anybody to death. That had all ceased for many, many years. Stoning to death was not taking place on a regular basis when this took place. And so, great, great question. Uh, According to scholars, most historians believe that there was a deal brokered off the side between, uh, that was was allowing Pilate to try to keep control of Jerusalem, which he was losing, and ultimately lost his job over that and was banished because he couldn't control the Jews, but rarely could the Romans control the Jews for very long. But he was brokering some sort of a trade-off with the high priests that they would control the Jewish people if he would let them take care of their own business and kill somebody like Stephen.
0: Well, that's really good. Yeah, that's you get that sense too with, with Saul because he was given letters from the synagogues that he could go around and arrest
2: people. Exactly. No, he, he, had, he had an authority to go throughout Roman lands and yeah. arrest Christians without any Roman permission. right? So that had already been granted somewhere because the Romans were still in charge. So you gotta know that somewhere behind the scenes, a deal was brokered that allowed this all to take place.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, last question, FV says, does our acquiescence as Christians make us weak to the state or is it a slippery slope to tyranny in our state?
2: I think both, I mean, I think I mean, I, th- I think two things here, and this very difficult topic to discuss in a, in a short bit of time. Yeah. But those are, I mean, and there's two things here. You've got this tension of yielding to the government authorities and honoring those people around you, and then starting to come to a place where you understand that there's no honor back and they don't really understand your journey. And at what point do you say, hey, you know, we want your attention? we feel like we're more important. I said this on, on a call last week and I've gotten a lot of feedback from other pastors about it that were on the call and it, I got rather intense, I must say. I said, look, there's been a complete injustice done here during this whole pandemic event and it has to do with the fact that people are dying without a loved one in, in, next to them in the hospital room That has never happened in history. Never in the history of our country has a pastor been forbidden to sit with a person while they are moving into eternity until now. And I said, that has only happened because the state is listening to doctors and medical people making decisions about eternal life and how people transition from this life to the next life. And that is not a medical decision. When a person is dying, the medical people are done. Their job is over and a spiritual person's job is just beginning. So that's when we are supposed to enter into the conversation, enter into the journey to help the person who is moving from one life to the next do it in a godly and thoughtful way, and not to mention, help the hearts of their family members be able to love that person and journey with them and not FaceTime them. And so for me, one of my takeaways of this whole pandemic thing will be, this has got to change before this happens again. There has got to be a realization that medical people should not be making spiritual decisions and neither should the government. Those decisions need to be made by families and people and throughout time and history, that has always happened. This is the first time in the history of our country that we've ever done anything like this and said, you may not enter in with a dying person as they're moving into eternity when they're desperate for you and they're desperate for comfort and they're desperate for prayer. They're desperate for intercession. They're desperate... I mean, how many times have I been in the hospital with dying people and held them when they took their last breath? Whether it was two o'clock in the morning, a phone call came and said, this person is now moving into the next life. You need to come immediately and you come to the hospital and I've held people. while well, they took their very, very, very last breath more than once in the time that I've been the pastor of Water of Life. And those people are today being denied the possibility of journeying spiritually into the next part of their life into eternity. And I think that's, I think it's an abomination, frankly. Yeah. I think it's from hell. I think it's scary. I think it's wrong. And I think we've got to deal with it um, before this all happens to us again. So yeah, I probably blew up a bunch of you saying all of that, but I'm sorry, that's my own personal conviction.
0: And it's a part of it that some of us don't see. I mean, if we're, we're talking about people gathering together in a, in a what you call a mega church, you know, thousands of people in a room, you forget
2: some of those stories and some of those situations that are happening. It's so important that I say this to you all the time that the church is made up of individual people, everybody counts. And I live like that and I believe that. Yeah. I mean, we have 20 to 25,000 people who call Water of Life home, but whenever somebody's dying, whenever your mom or your dad is dying, whenever your sister or your brother's dying, that's gonna be the only mom and dad you ever have. Yeah. And that moment is a life moment And there has been some deep, deep injury that's taken place with people during this pandemic crisis, people that were not able to say goodbye to loved ones, people that were not able to hold people, and they will be scarred the rest of their life from that. I I think shields, I think masks, I think gowns, I think gloves, I think all of that's important, but at the end of the day, they need to be in the room with the person when they're dying. Right. If they wanna be, if they wanna be in the room, they should be in the room. If they don't wanna be, the pastor should be in the room with a dying person. That's our job, that's my job. Absolutely,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. okay.
0: Well, another great, great um, study today. And we just wanna thank you so much for joining with us and for sending in such good and thoughtful questions. We really appreciate appreciate your engagement. This has been so much fun for me to be able to host this and have this conversation with our pastor. And so why don't we close in a word of prayer before we uh, dismiss for the night. So Father, we just thank you so much for all you're doing in our people, God, how you're discipling your people, uh, even through all of this, despite all of this, it's just another example of how, uh, when the enemy means something that will be death and destruction and hopelessness, God, you bring hope, you bring life, you bring purpose, you bring uh, possibility, God, you bring ministry, and so thank you so much for what you're doing in our church. God, may we, May we take these words to heart. God, may we be thoughtful. May we be like the Bereans and head back to our our word and just study as so many of our congregation have been doing during this time. So Lord, we thank you so much and we pray that you would turn the tide, Father, that we would see um, the church be able to open up when it's appropriate. God, that we would be able to minister in a way that we need to as ministers and pastors. And we just thank you for your hand on the church during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks so much, everyone. Have a great night. Remember to go to wallupdates.com for uh, devotions and everything else that's going on. We'll uh, see you over the weekend. God bless.